Well, let's return to our study in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Let me read the passage of Scripture, 522 through 24. Wives, be subjects to your own hus- subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands or to their husbands in everything. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would bless this time. Thank you for our worship so far, thus far. Father, may every heart here be prepared to receive your word. Fathers, pray for the Spirit, that the Spirit would be the Spirit of God. Your Spirit would be working through the hearts of the people and through my heart as I preach, as I herald, as I proclaim your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Rex and Brody were avid baseball players who spent much of their time traveling around Florida playing youth baseball. By many accounts, they were well-known in travel baseball circles. According to news reports, the family was friends with, even friends with the UF baseball coach. Until recently, their father, Rex and Brody's father, Paul Reinhardt, had been a successful executive in the company he founded. Their mother, Mindy, was listed as the vice president of the same company. On the outside, they seem to live the perfect American life. Some of you may even know them. Uh, There was no good reason to believe that something was amiss with them. Rex's travel team stated on social media that Rex was kind, generous, funny, talented, and a bit of a fashion icon with his flow and his sunglasses. At some point in the recent past, it seems, that their, their lives began to take a turn for the worse. The couple recently filed for divorce, and Paul was no longer, is no longer listed or was no longer listed as the president of the company he founded. All these things came to a head last week, early. I think it was on Monday night, Paul took his boys to the family's vacation home and began to send texts and posted alarming content to Facebook. In one of his texts to his wife, he warned her that it was too late that she would live with this for the rest of her life. She immediately responded, begging him not to hurt himself or the boys. Then she called 911 by accounts. By the time law enforcement arrived, flames had engulfed the home. The boys' bodies, along with their father, were found in a bedroom. This was a mother's worst nightmare. Tragically, Mindy spent this past Mother's Day, I would assume, dealing with the devastating loss of her, her two boys, the devastating loss of her family. The public may, know, may never know what transpired exactly to cause Paul to destroy his beautiful family. And that's okay, because we don't need to know every detail. It's enough to say that something was tragically amiss with them. That happened here in Gainesville. You probably, many of you may have read the news reports, and some of you may know them. We, some of the boys on the baseball team at, at First Christian Academy know, knew these boys, and so uh, they, they were affected by this. Also last week, you may have seen that federal authorities arrested Josh Duggar on charges of downloading and possessing child, child pornography. Several years ago in 2015, Josh admitted to inappropriately touching his sisters and a 
and a babysitter. Uh, the popular series that he starred in, along with his family, 19 Kids and Counting, was canceled due to that disclosure. Later that year, Josh admitted to using a website designed to help married people cheat on their spouses. He also admitted a long-term, long-term struggle with pornography. He and his family, as many of you, most of you may know, claim Christ as their Lord. Yet something is clearly amiss with Josh. Having said that, he deserves his day in court regarding these latest allegations. Well, I tell these two stories because both clearly illustrate the brokenness of families all around us. It's hard to miss. There's some differences in the story. Both situations have led, though, to to the tragic destruction of a family. Josh's family. He has six or seven, I think six kids and one on the way. He's in jail now, or actually he's out, I think, uh, in protective custody. But his life will never be the same. The Reinhardt family, obviously, obviously will be drastically changed going forward. In both accounts, though, the, the common theme seems, theme seems to be a desire to look successful to a watching world while hiding the reality of life. Back in 2015, Josh Duggar stated, I've been the biggest hypocrite ever. While espousing faith and family values, I have secretly over the last several years been viewing pornography on the Internet. This has become a secret addition, or addiction, and I have become unfaithful to my wife. The last few years, while publicly stating I was fighting against immorality in our country, I was hiding my own personal failures. He says he was the biggest hypocrite ever. Church, we have a major problem. It's a problem from which we cannot hide. This problem is not new. It affects each and every one of us. You see, we're clearly broken. We're marred by sin. And that's been true from from the beginning. From the beginning, since Adam's sin in the garden, that is. Every family that has existed, starting with Adam's sons, Cain and Abel, have been profoundly profoundly affected by sin. Yet God has provided from the very beginning a promise of redemption. A promise of redemption that He ultimately saw through in His Son, the Lord Jesus. He's also provided a clear blueprint for, the fam- for family life. To the extent that we follow this blueprint, to the extent we follow His model, we will avoid many of the tragic results of the sin that is so evident around us, of the brokenness that is so evident. Yet, our culture continues to attack God's design for the family. Our culture continues to attack marriage between a man and a woman. Truly, as we saw last week, the last time I preached, this has been Satan's scheme from the very beginning. It's true today, and it was true in Paul's day. Paul recognized this satanic attack on the family, therefore he addresses it in Ephesians 5. Paul wrote these words 2,000 years ago. They may, to some of you, to some who are listening, to even some of you in this room, these words may seem antiquated. But you ignore them 
at your own peril. You ignore them at your own peril. You see, God's Word still applies in this modern world. So let's take a look at the text in Ephesians 5, 22-24, where Paul begins to address the family, the family structure. He begins to give this model, this blueprint for the family. In particular, as we've been doing the last couple of Sunday, Sundays, we're looking at his address to the wives. Now look at your text in 521. Paul writes, "...and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ." In 521, we learn that God calls us, calls you, to reflect your role clearly. Therefore, we need to be in the correct submission. That's 521, the end of 521, 521b, I called it. You see, God has designed the hierarchy, if you will, of authority. We see this throughout His creation, do we not? The, the king of the jungle, jungle is the lion, right? We see this same structure in the church where he has elders who rule over the church under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the church's head. Now we also see this order reflected in 1 Corinthians 11.3 where where Paul says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. We see that order reflected demonstrates this pattern of authority and submission. Now, the understanding that Christ is head of the church helps us better comprehend the function of authority and submission. Both are conditioned by having the correct stimulus. The correct stimulus is the fear of Christ. Both parties, both the one in authority and the one in submission, must operate with a robust reverence for Christ, honoring Christ in all that they do. The one in submission should remember that submission to earthly authority is ultimately submission to Christ Himself. The one in authority must recognize that Christ will judge any abuse of that authority. By the way, He'll he'll, he'll judge abdication of that authority as well. In 522, Paul begins to apply these principles to the family. He begins with the wise because of their importance to the overall flourishing, the overall success of the family. Now, this is review. Uh, the first mo- that Paul gives in, in 522 and 20 through 24, he, gives, uh, uh, he implores the wives to submit to their own husbands. Then he gives three clear motivations for this appeal. First, you should submit to your own husbands because of your connection to Christ. Paul writes, wives be subject to your husbands, or your own husbands, as to the Lord. Ladies, the Lord calls you to submit to your own husbands. Now, most women in our day, even in the church, find this call to be offensive. Even, you might say, repulsive. But you must recognize as Christians who want to please Christ that it is good and right because it is from the Lord. As such, your connection to Christ is critical. He alone will give you the grace you need to obey Him, especially when your husband fails. He will give you the grace that you need when you inevitably fail. In the words of Elizabeth Elliot, no marriage can survive without forgiveness. Marriage is a long-term commitment between two sinners. And I can tell you, in my marriage... It is a long-term commitment between one big sinner and one that sins every once in a while. If you don't believe her, ask her. 
Just kidding. So I'll, I'll, I'll pay for that later. But we receive ultimate forgiveness through the Lord Jesus. Right? Ultimate forgiveness through Him. Therefore, your marriage, brothers and sisters, your marriage, husbands and wives, must be connected to Him. Second motivation. You should submit because of your comprehension of creation. Paul says, for the husband is the head of the wife. During the last sermon in this series, we saw that Paul's understanding of the one flesh union of, of man and woman comes directly from God's design in Genesis, and, Genesis 1 and 2. In the garden, God made man to be head of the woman. He gave to Adam the responsibility to care for and to protect Eve. He gave this responsibility, by the way, and this is very important that we, we understand this, he gave this responsibility prior, prior to the fall. Therefore, it was part of God's very good creation. It was His plan from the very beginning. And it was good. But man and woman had something that did something to mess that all up, right? So when Paul says that the husband is head of the wife, he connects back to God's creation mandate. As such, the idea is that the, the husband has been given full responsibility to care for, protect, and lead his wife. <coughs> Excuse me. And the woman has been given the responsibility to submit to her husband's authority, leadership, care, and protection. This can be, this is a beautiful reality. It's especially beautiful when both the husband and the wife work to please one another in the context of their relationship as they work to ultimately please Christ. When it falls apart is when it gets ugly, right? Your families prosper when they follow this model. At the end of verse 23, Paul begins to show that the, be show the, that the beautiful reality of marriage illustrates an even greater reality between Christ and the church. That leads us to the third motivation. Here he gives the third motivation, and it's in your bulletin. You should submit to your own husbands, ladies, because of your consideration of the church. Look at your text in verse 23. Paul writes, as Christ also is the head of the church. Your marriage, it says in your bulletin, you see the point there, your marriage has been clearly illustrated. Your marriage has been clearly illustrated. Paul points to the relationship between Christ and the church to illustrate the biblical model for marriage. Paul, Paul's words point back to uh, the amazing truths that he shared in the first part of this letter. In Ephesians 1, he reminded the church of the incredible nature of their salvation in Christ. In 1.3, he tells them that they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. In verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, he says that they were adopted as sons, as firstborn sons. Through, the, through Jesus Christ. In verse 7, they were redeemed and forgiven with, through the blood of Christ. In verse 13, they were sealed by the Holy Spirit as a pledge of their future redemption. In verse 15, after sharing these incredible truths about salvation, Paul prays that God would give the church a deep understanding of God's will for their lives and for this world. So he wants them to understand God's will because they, he wants them to have a hope a hope in His calling, a recognition of the riches of His glory and the greatness of His power. As such, 
He wanted them to understand the power of God displayed in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that Christ has been seated at His right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Paul shows that Christ has been given all authority. This is the same truth which Jesus told His disciples in Matthew 28. He also told them in Matthew 16. In verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians 1 are the the most amazing part of these truths. And this is what connects back to 523. He says, He put all things in subjection under His feet, under Christ's feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. You see, in this age, the church age, He chooses to display His mighty power through the church. You see, we're the body of Christ. We represent Christ in this lost and dying world. Now let me connect this back to 523. As Christians, as Christians, your marriage, your marriages are a picture of that union between Christ and the church. Therefore, just as Christ, or just as the church submits to Christ, the woman is to submit to the man. The woman's submission is a picture of a much greater reality. Your submission demonstrates an understanding and a recognition of Christ's ultimate authority. It's a display of power. And I don't mean the husband's power, I mean Christ's power working through the church. Now, ladies, you may be saying, well, what about my husband? He gets off easy. Well, let me give you a little preview of what's expected of your husband. I'm spending three sermons on the wives, men. You can only imagine what's coming for you. It says in 525, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, men, your love for your wife is a picture of the sacrificial love of Christ for the church. You are called as husbands to give the ultimate sacrifice to your wives, for your wives. Again, that's a picture of Christ in the church. The second point in this is that your marriage points to a transcendent reality. This incredible, the incredible reality of our relationship with Christ then must be lived out in our marriages. Now, I've thought a lot about this recently, obviously with this sermon series, but we're also taking a group of couples through uh, a book called Sweethearts for a Lifetime, and we've been thinking a lot about, my wife and I have been thinking and talking a lot about marriage. If our marriages are a picture, then, of Christ, of the church's relationship with her Lord, with Christ, I would argue that the brokenness that we see in Christian marriages is an indication of the current state of the church's relationship with Christ. Think about that. Think about that. Churches flourish where the marriage relationship is protected and revered. Churches flounder and fail where marriages are weak and are under attack. Where we're opening ourselves up to the world and we say, the world must know better. And, beloved, it's no different than the garden. Much of that attack is coming through the ladies 
through that avenue, and the men, you men, are sitting back and saying, "Well, I just, I'll, I'll abdicate my, my responsibility." Think about it. You remember, we must remember, Satan has been attacking the one flesh relationship from the very beginning. Now look back at 5.23. Paul says that Christ is the Savior of the body. Again, that points back to, to chapter 1 that we, just, that we just reviewed. You see, husbands are not the Savior of their wives in that same way. I think what Paul is simply saying is that Jesus has the right to be the head over the church because He has redeemed the church through the blood of the cross. He has redeemed each of us, each individual here. He has redeemed who, who knows Christ. He's rede- redeemed through His shed blood. And it's because of His work of redemption that we are in Him and submit to Him. And I believe because of that redemption, we are to obey Him. Now here's the connection. Ladies, you obey your Lord by submitting to your husbands. Men... You obey your Lord by laying your life down for your wives. Now, before we move to verse 24, I want to point out something that is critical. And I don't want to get too technical, but verses 22 to 24 are actually what's called a chiastic structure. Now, don't let that, don't disconnect. Please don't disconnect. Notice that he starts with, wives be subject to your own husbands, in verse 22, and and he ends with, 24 with the same basic statement. So it forms basically a sandwich. It's a sandwich. Just think of it as a sandwich which has two pieces of bread. So the beginning of verse 22 and the end of verse 24 are the bread. Now, generally speaking, now we used to have uh, jam sandwiches, you know, jam two pieces of bread together and eat it. We were poor when I was growing up at times, very poor. But you don't name a sandwich a bread sandwich. You name it, you put a meat in the middle, right? And you name it by the meat. So you have a turkey sandwich or a ham sandwich. Well, verse 23 then is the meat of the sandwich. In other words, the structure indicates that the submission of the wife points to the greater reality of the church's submission to Christ. Ladies, as Christian women, you, as women who want to be pleasing to Christ, you need to consider the church which Christ died for, as you submit to your husbands in marriage. That is the the church, and what Christ has done for the church is the greater reality. It's a greater reality. Third, your marriage must be lived out before the Lord. Look at verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own, to their husbands and everything. And this verse, Paul reiterates the headship of Christ over the church to argue that wives are subject to their own husbands. Paul's argument is straightforward, but we need to consider a couple of items here. Paul starts the verse with but. I think he uses this word to signify that while Christ is the Savior of the body, man is not the Savior of the woman in the same way. Nevertheless, 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 I think that's the the force that he uses. Nevertheless, wives should submit to their husbands. I believe that's Paul's point. Again, the main idea is not that the Christian the main idea is that the Christian marriage points to an even greater reality of Christ in the church. I can't say that enough that as you as you live out your life 
before the Lord, that as you live out your life as husband and wife, you are a picture of a greater reality. So, ladies, as you submit to your husband, you are modeling the submission of Christ or church, the church to Christ. So what is the sphere of your submission? Paul says in everything. Boy, that's a difficult one. That's a difficult one. So what does it mean? Here's how I would define it. Because I think Scripture limits it in some ways as well. You are to submit in everything that does not lead to sin on your part. I would argue that this qualification comes from the fact that you're to, to submit to your husband as to the Lord. And let me just say it this way. The Lord would never ask you to sin. He'd never ask you to sin. So, as you can submit, lovingly submit, the limit is where you are asked to sin. Now, having said that, as we close this section on the wives, I want to give the ladies five quick thoughts about submission that I hope will help frame your thinking, that to, to hopefully, the world tells you all these things, right? What submission is and how bad it is and, and how wrong it is that you have to submit to this man. I, I fully realize, I've said it many times, I know that I am swimming upstream. I'm swimming against a culture that's telling you something completely different in every way. First, Godly submission demonstrates that you are walking in love. Godly submission demonstrates that you are walking in love. That's Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, where Paul gives the command to walk in love. And he compared this type of love to Christ's love demonstrated by his sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, we are called to live in a sacrificial love toward God and toward others. And by the way, one of those others is your, is your husband. Sacrificial love towards your husband. It demonstrates this walk of love. In the words of Carol Mack, uh, his, whose husband, Wayne Mack, and her wrote the book that we're going through, Sweethearts for a Lifetime. We're called to walk in love by submitting to our own husbands, this, or to our husbands. This is, she's talking to the ladies. When we do so, we will find the true happiness and fulfillment that our hearts desire and that God desires to pour on us. Ladies, you want to be blessed? You want a blessed marriage? You obey Christ. And walk in love. Obey the law of Christ. Two, godly submission ditches your natural desire for leadership. Your natural desire, specifically your leadership over your husband. Ladies, you will have one of two tendencies. The first is a desire to usurp or to take upon yourself your husband's authority. In this case, you will find yourself in competition with him. You will want to overrule your husband when you feel that you are more qualified to make a decision. And I would, I would argue that this was the problem in the garden. You see, Eve saw that the tree of, of 
the knowledge of good and evil was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She saw this and that's the conclusion that she came to. And she took from its fruit and she ate and she gave to Adam and he ate too. But Adam, it was Adam who had been told by God not to do this. It was Adam who had been given that responsibility. He had been given the authority over the woman. He had been given the responsibility to care for and protect the woman, yet he did not prevent her from eating the fruit. He didn't didn't protect her. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. He disobeyed the Lord. He disobeyed the the law, God's spoken word at the time. Worse yet, she gave the fruit to him and he ate. As such, Adam allowed the woman to stand in his rightful place. Ladies, when you submit to your husbands, you are not inferior in any way. Let me make sure you understand that. You are not inferior in any way. In the words of Carol Mack, again, She says that an educated, talented, and godly woman might be tempted to think that she is far more qualified to be an authority than her husband is. Yet, we must look to the example of Jesus. Now, let this hang. Let this hang over over you right here. Though he was vastly superior to his parents in every way, he submitted to them. You don't believe it? Look at the Gospel of Luke. After he went to the temple and he was teaching there, he was speaking there, teaching there, his parents came and found him, and it says that he went and he was with them and he submitted to them. Beloved, if our Lord can submit to his parents in that way, how much how 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 much more so for us? On the other hand, godly submission, third, does not always say yes. Godly submission does not always say yes. In this case, the husband clearly leaves the home, but there is no input from the wife. The wife never says anything. She is completely dependent on her husband for everything. I I once knew a couple like this. That he controlled every aspect of their lives without any input from his wife. She dutifully responded by never questioning any of his actions. So she never gave any input. She was just quiet. She sat there and she did what she was told to try to stay out of trouble. He died in his 30s from excessive drinking. And she never remarried. You see, God intends for you, ladies to be a helpmate to your husband. And and this means that you are to partner with your husband by helping him. And you might say, well, how can I help him? Well, you help him by lovingly sharing your thoughts often. I don't mean mean to be a nag. Probably the wrong choice of word. Not that I'm calling anybody nags. But you're called... You're not called to give up your independent thoughts about life in general, your family, the church. Your husband then should value that input. 
should value. You're partnering together. Should, your husband needs to value that input. Second, you help him by giving him or telling him when something doesn't seem right. I mean, if, if it's something that doesn't seem right to you, if it seems like that maybe it's sin even, you, you tell him. You, you tell him in a loving way. You, you also can help him by giving him godly advice. You can help him by trying to influence him in a godly way. You help him, probably ultimately, the best way is by praying for him and with him. He needs to hear, your, he needs to hear you pray. He needs to hear your heart before the Lord. You help him by refusing to sin, by refusing sin, by living a godly life. And you help him by not making an idol of him. You help him by not making an idol of him. Some women make idols of their husband. The sun rises and sets in 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 her husband. And when he fails her, then she's devastated. But your, your worth is not found in your husband. Your worth is found in Christ. Abram and Sarai were an example of what can happen when a wife just yields to her husband without question. When, a, when Abram asked Sarah to, Sarai to lie in Genesis 12, she should have said no. No. Because doing so is not pleasing to the Lord. I know my wife has told me no many times. No. Not, not what we're going to do. And I've listened. And it doesn't mean she's leading me. It, it means that she is speaking what the Lord has already said. Don't do that unless it's clear. Fourth, godly submission does not mean that you suppress your spiritual gifts. As Christians, male, female, we've all been given spiritual gifts. We're expected to use them for the edification of the body of Christ. Ladies, you are called to use your spiritual gifts. You're... You know, in in my marriage, I can tell you, I've been absolutely blessed by my wife as she gives of herself and her resources for the sake of others. I have absolutely been blessed by that as I watch her use her spiritual gifts. And I often, I will often ask her for spiritual insight knowing that Christ has gifted her in different ways than me. I will often go to her and say, what do you think of this? Paul writes in Romans 12, 6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So ladies, you have gifts, spiritual gifts. If you are in Christ, you are to use them for His glory. Fifth, godly submission deals with the negative influence of fear. Godly submission deals with the negative influence of fear. Ladies, you may fear submitting to your husband. Possibly you fear the outcome of doing so. But you must remember that God will pour out His blessing upon the ones who obey Him. Therefore, you have nothing, absolutely nothing to fear by submitting to your husbands. Now, you may say, well, where'd you get that, Brandon? Well, that's 1 Peter 3. Peter tells the wives that they have nothing to fear if they do what is right. Absolutely nothing. John says that perfect love casts out all fear. So if you are loving your husband, 
If you're walking in love and, and submitting to your husband, you have no reason to fear because that is what the Lord ha- would have you do. Let me briefly address physical abuse. If your husband is a phys- physically abusive man, you must take steps to protect yourself and your children. It's as simple as that. This includes appropriately calling your elders to, to call on him to repentance, according to Matthew 18. He is in sin if he's abusing you. Or even calling the authorities for protection. It may come to that. Our hope as a church is always for reconciliation, but we cannot stand by while someone is suffering under the hand of an abusive person. Now, as we close, I want you to I want you all to know that these that proper submission, godly submission, and godly authority are impossible. I'll just stop there. It's possible. It's impossible outside of Christ and outside of the power of Christ working through us. You will not be able to do these things on your own. You will not be able to have a marriage that's pleasing to the Lord outside of the power of Christ, which, by the way, according to Ephesians 1, mightily works within you. If you trust In Christ, He alone is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. You want a marriage that's blessed? You want a marriage that pleases the Lord? Then you need to trust in Christ. You need to call on Christ. You need to seek Him. Then you can have marriages and families that are pleasing to Him and that flourish. But here's a word of warning. Going back to the intro, if you go your own way, if you say, I want to go my own way, or I want to go the world's way, I want to do it the way the world says we ought to do it, you will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. And we graphically see that every time we watch the news. The results of, uh, are, are, should be crystal clear of what happens when we don't follow the blueprint that God has given us. Beloved, we must live out our marriages before the Lord in the shadow of the cross. It's at the cross that we find grace that we need to be the men and women God calls us to be. It's at the cross where we can walk worthy of His calling. And that's Paul's overall call in this section, is that we would walk worthy of His calling. And ladies, when you submit to your husbands as to the Lord, you are walking worthy of that wonderful, incredible, amazing calling. So, ladies, I want to close with the words of Elizabeth Elliot. used her quite a bit in this over the last couple of sermons. She says this, To me, a lady is not frilly, flouncy, flippant, frivolous, or fluff-brained, but she is gentle, she is gracious, she is godly, 
and she is giving. You and I have the gift of femininity. The more womanly we are, the more manly men will be. And the more God is glorified. And then she ends with this. Be women. Be women. Be only women. Be real women in obedience to God. End quote. And I will add, and there you will find the joy. The joy that only He can give. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, as I mentioned earlier, I know that I'm swimming upstream. I know this is a subject that is frowned upon. I hope that in any of my words I didn't convey any inferiority of our ladies. As Peter says, our wives are a joint heir of the grace of life. Our wives are to be celebrated. We are to thank the Lord for our wives. And we do so when we sacrificially love them. Father, may we, as a church, uphold God's, your blueprint, your blueprint, your model for male and female. May you make us fruitful as we go forth. And may our families be May our families be a model for the gospel. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and your Son. Amen.